Hi friends and taphophiles, I'm your host, Lachelle. Today we're going back to a time when death was in fashion. You know what I'm talking about, the Victorian era. And we're going with good friend and author, Chris Woodyard. She's written many books about ghosts, hauntings, banshees, and more, both fiction and nonfiction. One of her nonfiction books that I love is called The Victorian Book of the Dead. Sounds like something I would like, doesn't it? It was selected and edited by Chris, and she took pieces from newspapers and articles and books and firsthand accounts during this Victorian period of death, mourning, burials, morning practices, and traditions. And she also has some really spooky stories that she has found from those times. We had such a great conversation together, and I was really happy to have her come and join us for our second stop on our October Spooktacular, What Lies Beneath, interview with a taphophile, Chris Woodyard, and the Victorian Book of the Dead. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. into it, let me make a small apology. My audio is not fantastic. But Chris's is great, and she is the main focus on this episode anyway. Stick with it. She has some really fun stories to tell. Hi, Chris, and thank you for joining us on Stones, Bones, and Shadows today. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for being here with us today. My pleasure. Always happy to talk about death. <laughs> You're a true soul sister. I hope so. <laughs> I have just loved reading your book called The Victorian Book of the Dead. And I think that our listeners will really love it too. I've seen lots and lots of posts about your book and so I think that this will be really fun we're going to dive in we're going to talk about the Victorians and some of their crazy thoughts and ways and of course their funerary practices and omens of death lots of just fun stories so can't wait to dive in with you into your book yes there's nothing that says fun like omens of death <laughs> <laughs> we put the fun in funeral. Funeral, yes. <laughs> so first, would you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got into writing? I wrote my first book in first grade, actually. I was um, I dictated it to my mother, oh. and it was about a witch. And I oh. 
started writing about the supernatural and the dark side ever it's since. It's so great. I love um, it. Yeah, I illustrated it. I still have it. I still have the book. Oh, my gosh. It's amazing. So that was my start in the dark side. Um, but I grew up with some with a lot of older people. I spent a lot of time with grandparents, and I got a taste for really um, antique-type things. At my grandparents' house, for example, there was a post-mortem photo of a baby in the attic, and there was also a hair wreath. Oh, wow. So I, early on, I got very acquainted and interested in this stuff. Also, there was a, I was kind of a goth child, really. <laughs> there was a cemetery next to our elementary school playground, and I would hop the fence and look at the monuments. <laughs> this is my favorite thing I think I've ever heard. This is so great. Oh, there was also a pioneer cemetery in the woods near where I lived, and I was seven years old and a, pretty much a feral child wandering around these woods. <laughs> and there was the cemetery with a headstone for a child age seven. And that was the first time that I realized that children could die just oh, instead yeah. of the old people that I'd seen before. Because in our family, it was we went to funerals, even as small children. Yeah. And true. I was fascinated. Uh, I remember my great aunts, and I'm like, oh, she has the prettiest coffin. It's just like a jewel box, because it had a pretty pink lining. And uh, so I spent a lot of time around sort of death themes. And across the street from our high school, there was also a Victorian cemetery. Oh, goodness. Where did you go to school, girl? In Dublin, Ohio. Oh, that's, I think that is just so awesome. It's a very old town, and um, they had a holding vault for the bodies and lots of Victorian monuments, so I would, I would wander around there when I got a chance. So I came by it honestly, I guess. <laughs> and so where did you get the idea to write the Victorian Book of the Dead? First, let's tell about how it, it, it's a compilation book, right, of writings from the time. It's primary sources uh, with my comments and annotations because there's a lot, of, a lot of customs and ideas and themes that are mentioned in some of these articles that we have no idea about. It was sort of like if you were watching Saturday Night Live in 1890, you wouldn't get the in-jokes. <laughs> so to me, it was important to explain the context of, of a lot of these cu customs and things. Sure, and it really helps. I'm, I'm glad. Um, I got the idea because I had written a number of books on ghost stories, um, first in Ohio and then nationally in a book called The Ghost War Black, Ghastly Tales from the Past. And I kept coming across these amazing stories about strange deaths or ghosts or funeral customs. And I thought, I have to collect these. You know, this is just right up my very dark alley. And so I, I put Noir them together. Alley. Yes. <laughs> so I put them together and it's 360 pages. Um, I'd like to write a sequel. I've got a lot more oh, material. Yeah. It's just never ending. It's, it's really something. So it's newspaper articles and... Personal accounts. There's a, just a heart-rending story from a man who lost his baby son. And uh, they first thought the child was dead, and then he was alive again, and then he actually died. And just heart-rending 
pain. Um, sometimes there's this false belief that people in the past didn't care about their kids because they lost so many children. Oh, right, right. And that simply does not go with what I read. Uh, people were devastated and they had multiple deaths. I don't know how they carried on. Um, I don't either. And a lot of times we do read in these stories that they suffered you know, a lot of depression mm -hmm. and health. You know, their health suffered, so much suffered because of all of right. this. And they didn't have medication. They didn't have counselors. They just had to kind of do the best that they could. And so, yes, every time I see a baby grave, I just, even in those old days when there's four of them in a row for the same family, you just realize that, you know, that poor mother, that poor father, that was literal heartbreak over and over and over. Yes. And when you had an epidemic or if you had something like diphtheria sweeping through the home, people could be dead in hours. Um, there's a really devastating Cholera was particularly dangerous because it, they didn't really quite know how contagious it was or how, how it was contracted. Um, and in one case, the child was basically put in a room and the parents had to only look at it through the glass because they couldn't oh. afford to, be, to get the disease. Yeah. One of Queen Victoria's daughters, Princess Alice, uh, she was living in Germany and all of her children came down with diphtheria, except one who'd been sent away. And she nursed them and she was fine. And then one of her boys was so devastated on hearing that his sister had died, he asked for a kiss. She gave him a kiss and then she contracted the disease and died as well. Oh. So we, oh. there was just no, no way to deal with so many diseases. Yeah, just so heartbreaking. And, and I think, that that's part of what I love about your book is it really runs the gamut, so to speak, of all the different things. There's the kind of spooky, the macabre, the hilarious, the strange, and the heartbreaking. You know, it's got all of those things that, um, and some of them, I guess, are kind of hilarious to us at this time just because, um, you just, you can't imagine the things that happen, you know, that would have happened in those days of the things. For instance, one of the chapters, chapter 10, is grave errors, exploding corpses, oh, yes. <laughs> flaming formaldehyde, and other funeral fatalities, which again, not funny, but a little bit funny, right? It really was bizarre how they wrote about some of these terrible things. Um, they would write about a corpse that exploded its own coffin because it was not properly embalmed or not kept cold enough. And there's kind of a macabre humor about the way they report it. It's like, well, that didn't happen in your family, yes. so it's funny. Yeah. And those, those things happened all too often. But um, there was also what struck me was, and I collect examples of this, just absolutely heartless humor about death. Mm -hmm. And I try not to put too much of the really heartless right. stuff into my books. But there was there was a whole theme of widow jokes. Oh, really? Let's make 
fun of women for losing their husband or let's make fun of them for wanting another husband. That's, that's usually how it goes. But here's, here's one. It's called Breaking the News. Okay. It's related that it once fell to an Atchison man to break the news to a woman that her husband had been killed. Do you know, he said, calling at her house, that with your light hair and pretty complexion, you would break every heart in town if you dressed as a widow? She blushed and laughed. And you are one, he added. Your husband was just blown to atoms down in the boiler works, but then black is so becoming to you. <laughs> and that, that is a joke. That is meant as a joke. Oh, that's terrible. It is. And uh, that's just a mild example. I mean, right. I really would not dare to tell some of the worst things. Right. But this one, this one is also interesting. Cremation was not, it was kind of an, seen as an eccentric way to uh, bury or dispose of human remains. Burial was really the norm. And if you cremated, you were a little out there. Yeah. So this has a gentleman asking a widow, Pardon me, but what has become of that handsome vase you had on the mantle? Was it not, the widow says, yes, it contained the ashes of my lamented husband, but I had to put it away. The sight of it was so harrowing to my feelings. Just think, the other day I discovered the servant scouring the knives with all that remained of poor William. Oh, no. So they used ashes yes. to scour steel and... They also used ashes to clean teeth, and that's another joke about, yes, there was ashes in the, on the mantelpiece, and oh, I used them no. to clean my teeth. So quite, yes. quite macabre. It's, yeah. Inappropriate. They were a unique bunch, the Victorians. Um, we've talked some on an episode or two just because it's just so interesting, all of their um, funerary practices. But I thought it would be fun to kind of go through some of those with you since you've written so much about it. Well, the first thing people did after a death was usually stop the clocks. And in some areas, they covered the mirrors or anything with glass. And there's a lot of different debate about why they did that. Oh, so the ghost won't come back in through the mirror and take you away. Or mm -hmm. so you won't see the reflection of the dead in the mirror. Right. There's a lot of debate about why. And I think it varies from region to region. Uh, but one of the most common actions was to hang a piece of crepe on the door. And crepe was a crinkled black mourning fabric. Um, you would hang white crepe for children or black for adults. Uh, some of them went on the doorknob, and some of them went on a special bracket so it could be taken in at night because there was a ready market in stolen crepe. Oh, oh um, goodness. It was a very expensive fabric, and people would just take it off the door. Or they would play a prank and move it to oh. another house. Oh, that's rude. And it was horrifying and shocking to people. And they're like, oh, my God, who died in that house? Oh, oh, he moved that for a prank. Ha, ha, ha. Oh. So... It signaled to the world there'd been a death. And we have nothing that compares to that. I'm trying to think of something yeah. like, you know, hearing a siren coming down the street. But we have nothing that compares with a, a crepe on the door right. that signaled that the house had been bereaved. And I love that it's chapter five, crepe. It fuses and abuses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it was abused because people would... Um, 
in the same way that we think of a gangster sending funeral flowers to a rival, oh, yes. they, so people would send crepe to people they didn't like, or they would send a shroud, or they would send a little coffin oh, wow. just to threaten and say, you know, you're, you're going to be sleeping with the fishes pretty soon. <laughs> okay. Wow. I hadn't even thought about anything like that. It's, it's really surprising. There was an extensive case where this woman reported a woman in black all veiled like a widow, and she would slip these nasty notes under the door, and she would tie crepe to the door, say, you're going to be sleeping with your son, your dead son, soon. Oh. Creepy. And yeah. they never did catch her. That is creepy. And after, you know, you, you had the crepe on the door, and sometimes that was brought from the undertaker, and you could rent it, um, you had to find your mourning clothing because etiquette dictated that the bereaved should not appear in public until they were properly dressed. So you might call the dressmaker along with the undertaker. Speed was of the essence. And this was only in the middle class and upper classes. If you were poor, yeah. you'd... You couldn't afford these things. No. You would borrow something from the neighbors, or you'd go to the pawn shop and maybe get mm -hmm. a veil or a strip of black you could put on your arm. Right. And then, yeah. But it was thought that you really had to have your morning before you could go out. So um, the morning departments in the, uh, they had what were called morning warehouses where they specialized in morning clothes and they would send out people make, to make house calls, to make the clothing at the house, or mm. they would bring something and then fit it. Yeah. One dressmaker revealed that she just basted everything together. And after the funeral, she'd return and sew things properly because it had to be done so quickly. That makes sense, yeah. So these places would send out catalogs showing you the latest in mourning so you could make your selection. Uh, one department store had on staff a professional widow <laughs> who would come to the house with samples and you could choose and she would tell you the, the most important pieces of etiquette that you had to follow in case you didn't know. Right. Uh, people were very, very anxious about doing things right, about mourning correctly. And there were articles in all the women's magazines and on the women's pages of the papers saying, here's how you do it. It, it just feels so crazy to us now. You know, people, it's like we don't even want to talk about mourning or death, you know, anymore. So No. And people no. are always trying to get others to get over it. And, yeah, two weeks tops. You should be over it by now. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you got to be back at work. Yes. You got to be, you know, running the kids yes. around, doing your thing. And if you break down, it's embarrassing mm -hmm. to others. And, yeah. You know, and yeah, literally, friends have said, yeah, my, you know, my daughter asked, well, when are you really going to get over this? You know, and it was like her son that had passed away. Wow. It's like, mm, never, you know, never yeah. going to get over this. It's one of the reasons I, I do like, talking about these kinds of subjects just to help remind us to that even though we're a long ways away from the Victorians, we could probably adopt a few things. And that's just that it's okay to mourn and that it's expected. And, you know, we may not have to wear a veil and be a widow in crepe, obviously, but we could be sensitive to others. Well, I kind of wish we had something we could identify the bereaved by. Um, I agree. It's just so hard 
to and and I've had friends who were who lost husbands and in one case she was out shopping and um, some stranger said to her, "Oh, smile! It can't be that bad." Oh no! I'm like, yes, it damn well can be that bad. Yeah, it is. And she burst into tears oh. and and ran away, but. If, if you had some kind of a signal, a, a ribbon or a ring or a brooch so that lovely. everybody understood, and that was the point of the crepe veil and the crepe, um, yeah. to identify who was in need of consolation or, or we should be extra nice to this person because they're struggling. Right. And that's one of those things that I'm kind of empath kind of person, and it's just, I try to think of that as when you see someone that just doesn't look happy or, you know, just in that instance, like you talked about your friend too, mm-hmm. take a second and think like we have no idea what other people are going through exactly. in their lives. Yeah. And just, you know, if you can give them a smile and just say hello, maybe that will really help them in their day. Right. Yeah. Completely heartless um, to it, it really, really upset her um, at the time and still does. Yeah, yes, very painful. And you're right that I guess I hadn't thought about it quite that way before as a signal to someone else. Well, obviously, she has, she's all dressed in black with the veil and everything. She's had a terrible loss in her life. Some widows actually stated that it was comforting to them that their face wasn't revealed. I didn't want my tear-stained eyes revealed to the public. You know, I didn't want strangers staring at me. So I, and, and it was, I went to the shelter of the veil. They often talk about it as shelter. Oh. And we, we, in this period, you know, tend to think, oh, this is something imposed on women by the patriarchy. Uh, they had to wear mourning for two years and their husbands could remarry immediately if they died. Yes, there was a double standard. But as I say, in some cases, it was actually helpful. It wasn't in all. Uh, Women complained also of, oh, I've got black dye all over my face because it was bleeding in the heat or I was sweating. And it's very hard to get off and it's rather toxic. Um, And doctors did not like the veils. They were supposed to be, in some ways, dangerous. Yeah. And I'm, I'm interested. I'm going to be hearing a talk about um, conserving crepe articles and how much arsenic actually is in them. I'm going to be very interested to hear what they found. Oh, wow. Because there was a lot of debate. Um, some people said, no, it, there's nothing harmful. Other people were like, yes, you're breathing particles of arsenic because they flake off and that's how they process the crepe. Uh, I'm not quite sure of what chemicals were used. I know there was heat used um, because Coutold, who made the, they pretty much had the monopoly on crepe manufacture. It's their trade secrets. They're not going to tell you what kind of chemicals they used. Yeah, that is wild. That will be interesting. After the Civil War, you'd call the undertaker. Um, the establishments we know as funeral homes didn't really come into common use until the late 1800s. Bodies were usually prepared and viewed at home before that. Right. The undertaker might prepare the body using, again, an arsenic-based fluid and the arterial embalming method that was developed to uh, embalm soldiers during the war so their bodies could be returned home. 
Or he might put the body in an ice box. They had special coffins with ice underneath. And quite a few undertakers felt that you got better results with ice. Now, I always thought it was like, you know, you'd have a tray of ice, like you'd have fish in the grocery case on, and put the corpse on top. <laughs> but several 19th century undertakers said it was unlikely they ever buried anybody alive because if they had been alive, they would have frozen to death when they were packed in the ice. Yeah. So I, I'm not quite sure how this worked because I've seen patents for corpse coolers. <laughs> And the object seemed to have been to freeze the body solid and let it gradually thaw. And one of the corpse coolers has a pipe, like a rubber tube that goes out the window, draining the water. And I'm like, oh, man, the sound of that, the smell of that. Yes. Oh, my gosh. They also were really big into the photography of the dead as well. And... You realize that, you know, they didn't take that many photos in those days. I mean, it was expensive. It was a newer technology. And many people couldn't afford it. And so it may be until after someone passed away or they were coming close to death that they were like, we don't even have a picture of this child. Mm-hmm. Especially children. I mean, postmortem photos are a good percentage of them are children. And it was, oh, we hadn't had time to photograph the child before, we're going to do it now. And it was quite interesting. I read, I think I put this, this is in the Victorian Book of the Dead, an interview with a man who did postmortem photos. And he said it was a comfort to the mother. It was something for the mother to cry over. Um, And it wasn't, it wasn't a horrible thing. It wasn't morbid. It was a, just a beautiful little photo. And they tried to make, usually make, make them look like they were asleep. Right. Not always, but that was the, the primary. Earlier, you do find rather stark images of people just in their coffins, very steep mm-hmm. angles and kind of strange-looking, kind of gothic-looking. Uh, but later, they did these what are now termed sleeping beauty type pictures where you'd have them on a couch and you might have a lace canopy above and everything was designed to be quite beautiful and as if they were sleeping. Mm-hmm. Now there's a trope of people, uh, there's a, a number of people who still believe that um, if you see a posing stand behind a body, a person in a photograph, it means they're actually dead. Um, and that was actually meant to just stabilize the head. Mm. You can't hold a dead body up with one of those stabilizers. You, you can't hold a body up with one of the photographic neck stabilizers. They're too lightweight. Um, the only time I've ever seen bodies posed upright mm-hmm. is things like um, an outlaw in their coffin. You know, they'd stand the coffin up against... Um, an outside wall and take pictures. Right. There was all. There was also forensic photography done to identify the unknown dead, and they usually liked to sit those bodies up because it gave a more natural appearance. But they had to use all kinds of contraptions in terms of rotating tables or straps with on an armchair to keep the body upright because it was. It's very difficult mm-hmm. to keep a corpse 
from falling down. You can't just stand it up against a wall. Right. Sit in a chair and take the picture. Right. There are a few sitting post-mortems, and um, I'm not sure whether they were tied in place or what, um, but standing post-mortems when you're supposedly held up by the neck support, that that's not real. Okay, gotcha. I, I love the chapter, Themes for a Funeral. Oh, yes. Amateur mourners and funerary <laughs> extravagance. <laughs> We had professional mourners. We had amateur mourners. It was it was really interesting to me that there was a whole class of people that just enjoyed going to funerals. They would go to strangers' funerals, and then they'd get a carriage ride out to the out to the cemetery, and that was a big treat. And I'm like, well, okay, whatever turns you on, that's fine. But the undertakers got kind of fed up with it and they started issuing tickets to only family members and if you didn't have a ticket you didn't get to ride <laughs> uh, there was also a wonderful story about a woman um, just they called her the widow and she wore the deepest mourning she had a long veil and she'd sit with the family and sob and sob and sob and then it was a custom at the end for everyone to walk by the coffin and take one last look at the dead and she'd wait till everybody was gone, you know, had done, processed by. And then she would walk up and she would just fling, her, fling herself on the coffin and start sobbing. And under the cover of her veil, she would loot the body for any jewelry. <gasps> Whoa! And I'm like, hmm, that's pretty gutsy. Whoa! Did she finally get caught? I didn't say, it just said she was well-known. <laughs> she was known for doing But it. when you had someone who was wearing a widow's outfit, if you, okay, let's say she grabs some jewelry and then she goes out in the street, nobody's going to molest her. She's obviously a person in mourning. We're not going to touch her <laughs> unless, you know, we know exactly who she is. So I think it was pretty easy for her to get away with it. The floral pieces that they had in those days were just, Bonkers would be the word I'd use. <laughs> and sometimes they say in in your book it says floral vulgarity. <laughs> it, it, they were extremely popular. Um, what would what they would do is they had a wire frame that they would build various floral um, tributes on, like gates ajar, and you would have a flower gate with the little gate open. Mm -hmm. I've got pictures of banjos and trumpets and a fire fighter's helmet. Um, you have empty <laughs> chairs. My favorite are the clocks. They have sad hour clocks with, that are made of flowers. And the face is made of cardboard with movable hands that oh. points to the time of death. And they call them sad hour clocks. That's interesting. Yeah, sad hour clocks. And then this one i just when you talk about vulgar um i just couldn't hardly believe this one it was a working derrick made out of flowers and it was ordered by the structural iron workers of america in 1888 for one of their members and it represented the derrick that killed him whoa and it had his last words spelled out on the base really absolutely mad 
And then you talk about in your book how, like, doves had been killed so that they could be a part of these. Yeah, they had stuffed doves and you could rent them or buy them. Um, and they were living, you know, they had been living doves. They, they yeah. eventually started making yeah. them out of cotton instead of actually killing doves. Uh, but they were a symbol yeah. of purity and the Holy Spirit and the, the Spirit flying up to heaven, extremely popular on um, funeral arrangements. And another mm-hmm. item they had were sheaves of wheat, which were Make usually used for way. older people, indicating, you know, the yeah. harvest was ripe and they've been, they've been taken. It was sometimes used with a floral sigh, indicating that they'd just been harvested. It's so, it's so interesting. I mean, we could go on for hours about the strange things that, you know, that became part of their customs. It's kind of, I, I always compare it to the um, wedding industrial complex. They always print lists of expensive traditions that you have to follow when you get married. And I think it was kind of like that with, with funerals. Mm-hmm. When you look at the upper classes in, for example, England, they had very, very elaborate funerals. And the poorer segments of society wanted that. So they would um, put a few pence a week into a burial club so they could be guaranteed to have a decent funeral. Well, what happened was that whoever ran the burial club would tell the local undertaker exactly how much this person had to spend. And then the undertaker would tailor the funeral just to get that amount of money. And the the poorer, lower classes were criticized for having elaborate funerals. Why are you wasting your money on this? And yet, sometimes there's been interviews with um, some of the people, and they said, well, he didn't have anything in life. I'm going to make sure he has a first-class funeral. And it was, it was very, very important. It was a disgrace to be buried in the pauper's grave or in the potter's field. No one wanted that. They would do almost anything to avoid it. So it was very important to have a, a good funeral, a decent funeral. I have to say that I really do love the um, carriages and some of the things that they use you know, those days to carry them to, you know, the glass-sided and... Oh. Yeah, the hearses are so beautiful. And you can still use... Some places still um, rent hearses today or uh, have them for their funerals. I, I was just speaking to someone yesterday who said that um, in England, in London, her house is on a route to a cemetery, and a couple of times a week they have a horse-drawn hearse oh, wow. coming through exciting uh, that you can still do that it really is i i do think that that was such a classy ride to the cemetery yeah and the undertakers were very very proud of their hearses they were expensive and their horses were expensive and they would brag and advertise and say we've got this fine hearse and here's we've got some new hearse horses everybody uh in we're going to hold a contest and you get to name them so it was all kind of a community. Uh, it was a it was an aspect of community pride to have a good hearse and horses. It's so amazing.
let's talk about how they were so afraid of being buried alive and that sometimes it actually did happen. It did, um, especially when there were uh, diseases like cholera, which killed very quickly or put you in a coma very quickly, and there was no way to tell, really didn't. They had some ways to tell, and some of the societies that were, you know, trying to prevent people from being buried alive would give tips on what to do. Okay, shock them with electricity. Um, if you hold mm-hmm. a candle to the skin, if it blisters, they're still alive. Right. It was just very, very important to check on that. Pinching, um, stabbing with needles. Yeah. And some people actually put in their will, cut my throat or stab me to the heart before you bury me because I don't want to be buried alive. I'd rather go that way if I'm still alive. Oh, wow. I I can imagine, though, how terrifying the thought of that would be, especially once it ever got to be known that it has happened. <laughs> yes. And and so much of it, it kind of veers into urban legend territory. There yes. was one story about a woman in New Orleans who was supposedly buried alive, and it made the rounds of absolutely every paper across the United States. It I don't know why that particular story resonated so. But then I believe it was found that there was no such person. It was just a story, but it did whip people up into a frenzy. People were very, very worried about it. They had patent coffins that supposedly would send up a flag or there would be a speaking tube or a breathing tube above ground. And um, after a certain interval, when they figured if you were not talking or sending the flag up, you were dead. They would just pull up the tubes and cover up the grave. Wow. Or the notorious bell. Yes, the bell. Um, and I think there's only one of those still in place. Because, like I said, they were removed. It, it strikes me as I, I need to do more investigation into that to find out, did people purchase those? It sounds like something you would just rent for a week or something. Oh, wow. Yeah. In addition to being afraid of being buried alive, they were afraid of being dug up by the body snatchers. Right. And that's where we also find a lot of inventions. Um, There's a fellow and artist in Ohio named Phil Clover who invented the coffin torpedo, which would shoot you if you opened the coffin uh, without authorization. (laughs) Or there was another fellow who sprinkled um, the equivalent of landmines in the ground around his wife's coffin because he didn't want the medical students digging her up. And he was told, you know, if this explodes, it's going to destroy her body. He said, I'd rather have that happen than have her go to the dissection lab. We don't know how many people actually, you know, use these devices. But again, they're sort of pervasive, like the idea of being buried alive, the idea that there are things out there to deter body snatchers was a very popular trope. Yeah, the mort safe. Yeah, the mort safes. We didn't have those here. Yeah, we didn't have those here, and I'm not quite sure why. What we have here is big boxes, like bank vaults almost, Mm. that you would put the coffin in and make sure that nobody could get to it. Because if you had just a simple wood coffin... You're buried six feet down. What the body snatchers would do would be come in and just dig down to the head 
of the coffin, expose the head, break in Whoa. the wood, put a hook under the chin or a rope around the neck, and yank you out of the coffin. Um, it was too much trouble to uncover the whole thing. So you just sort of get winched out of the coffin. Wow. And that guaranteed that nothing was damaged. The only thing was the hook under right. the chin or the, the rope around the neck. Because you didn't want to oh. damage any organs that the that medical students would like wild. to look at. Wild business. <laughs> it was a wild business. And it went on for an amazingly long time, even after medical schools were given permission to use unclaimed bodies or bodies of executed prisoners or people from the workhouse. Um, they did, never had enough corpses, so they were still stealing them. Um, there was quite a scandal when, let's see, it was President Benjamin, he was later President Benjamin Harrison. Um, his father's body was stolen and taken to a body, a um, medical school in Cincinnati. And he'd seen that his cousin's grave had been disturbed and went looking for the body. They didn't find it at the Cincinnati school. It had been sent to Michigan. But they were looking around and they finally saw some body hanging down a kind of a shaft by the, by the, um, on it with a rope around his neck. And they winched Ooh. that up and it turned out to be his dead father. And he was stripped naked. They'd shaved his beard off so he wouldn't be identified. And it just it it just tore them to pieces to to see that happen to their father. Oh, yeah. Who can even imagine the horror that that would be? Well, since we are into October, let's talk about some of the more macabre and spooky stories that we've got. You and I had talked about portents of death and some of those feelings and tokens of death. That was what they were called. Yes, these things that would come to them that would give them almost a view that it was coming to them. I like the ones that have sort of a funeral aspect to them. In England and Scotland particularly, there were people with second sight. They reported seeing shrouds on living people. And they would say, oh, that one's not going to live very long because the shroud's already up to his chin. Or that one's going to get better because the shroud is only up to his knees. So it's quite fascinating. It was like, you know, we can, we can calibrate how long you've got to live by where the shroud is. <laughs> There were also hearses, phantom hearses, that would, in, in some families, would drive up to the door, and you'd look out, and there's, of course, nothing there. And you knew that next day somebody's going to die. One of my favorite ones, though, is a woman who was, um, her husband was away on business, and she and the maid were about ready to go to bed, and they saw on the balcony outside the husband's room two funeral mutes. Now, these were men dressed in black, and they carried what were called draped staves. It was kind of like a broom with black fabric over it. And they were attendants in a funeral procession, or they would stand outside a house and just look mournful. And it was like mm -hmm. telling people, yes, there's a funeral or a corpse in the house. 
they see these people on a balcony where there's no way they could have gotten there. And they watched them for a while, and then they just vanished. And of course, the next day, they got news that the husband had died. Oh, wow. Scary, right? And then we've got the Banshee. And that, again, is sort of a family-specific omen of death. You hear this screaming, and then you know somebody in the family is going to die. I've actually heard of a modern version of this where the woman didn't die, but she was on the edge of death, and this thing was screaming outside her mother's room, and she had no idea what was going on. That's terrifying. Yeah. Knockings, pictures falling off the wall, things breaking in a very mysterious way, clocks stopping, visions of coffins. I walked into the parlor and there was a coffin on two chairs and it turned out in a week one of my children died and there they were laid out in their coffin exactly like that. This was um, from reported in 1914, which is a little late for the Victorian time, but I always like to say that it's more a frame of mind than it is an actual time period. A woman and her husband once lived three miles from town, and one night her husband had to go away. Her father and mother lived down the lane apiece, so her mother came up to spend the night with her. After a while, they saw a light shining in the wall, so they went to the window and raised it, and they called out, What do you want? But it did not answer. So they called out again, but it did not answer. Then they called out once more what it wanted, and it said, Nothing, nothing, nothing. So pretty soon it disappeared and it went off down the lane and they got up and dressed and went to the father's house and knocked on the door and asked if he was dead and he said, no, but I soon will be because I had a token. I heard the hearse come and take the coffin out and open the lid. Then they shut it up and drove off. About three weeks after that he died and they took him off to the graveyard. I really enjoy these these tokens of death. Um, people really believed in them and they just took it for granted that if a picture fell off the wall or if a bird got in the house or was tapping at the window I was told as a child if the bird is tapping at the window somebody's going to die so that always scares me when I've got birds tapping at the window (laughs) and that's what's interesting is they they felt like they really saw these things and then something really did happen. These people were sitting in their parlor and one of them looked out the window and saw a ball of fire. She said, Ooh. oh, mother, look at the ball of fire. Almost scared her to death. Yeah. Mother looked and didn't see anything and said, you're just seeing things. Let's go back to our book. Well, she couldn't keep from looking and she saw the ball of fire twice more, making three times in about one hour's time. The stepbrother and father came home in the wagon, and my stepbrother was all worked up, for he'd seen an angel going through the air carrying a big ball of fire. (sighs) Then we knew it was a token, sister seeing the ball of fire out the window, and my brother seeing it in the wagon. My grandma died that night, 70 miles away from us. It's hard to understand because we don't seem to do that today. I mean, I'm sure if you went on certain forums, you know, you would find stories like this. But it's not in common popular culture. 
anymore. Uh, I think people think, oh, it's just superstition, it's just stupid, um, and, and why, you know, think about it. Um, I, I know somebody who, um, let's see, her father was sick, and she was in bed and on the second floor, and there's no way anyone can get up on that second floor outside. There's no balcony, no trees brushing up against it, and she swears that she heard, felt and heard somebody pounding on the outside on the second floor up, up next to the bedroom, like a giant fist going wham, wham, wham. And the next day the father was dead. She interpreted it as a token of that. But that's, again, it's, it's rare to hear those kinds of stories today in, in public. Yes, exactly. You've got some of those in your book is some of those so many strange the ways that people died in those days i mean i guess it can be still strange today but it just seemed like there were some really weird things that happened tell us some of those oh yes way too many one thing i really enjoy reading is oh. And, and this is really reprehensible of me, is, um, <laughs> is reading strange deaths. I mean, you, you find the oddest, oddest deaths, and some of them, again, it may be urban legend territory. And this one isn't necessarily from the book, but it's of a similar ilk. Um, for example, this woman contracted typhoid from her dead husband's clothes. Her husband died seven years before and a couple of weeks after seven years later she's going through his clothes which were stored away in the attic and a few days later she's taken ill with the same disease and the doctors say she caught them from the clothes from seven years before from seven years it doesn't sound plausible but there, there we, we are, are. <laughs> i don't know when undertakers prepared a body at the house and, and the body was laid out at the house, they would often leave um, embalming fluid to sprinkle on the body as a disinfectant. And they were very, very careless with this stuff. It's poisonous. And they would leave it in teacups and whiskey bottles and people would drink it and die. Uh, in one case, the guy put it in a champagne bottle and everybody thought it was champagne and started drinking it. And yeah, carnage. Oh, like what? What was the thought process? Here's an empty bottle was the thought process. But goodness. Yeah, it was a bottle. It was convenient. <laughs> and then you also have amazing stories about people who are supposedly frightened to death. Yeah, um, I thought one that was really interesting was the hearse driver that was killed by lightning at the side of a grave. When the funeral procession arrived at the cemetery and it almost stopped at the side of the grave bearing the dead body of Mary Brown, a lightning bolt which stunned all the members of the party instantly killed William Alsop, who was driving the hearse and started the horses drawing the hearse on a dead run. The deadly bolt at first stunned one of the hearse horses, bringing him to his knees. 
He was but shocked, however, and being like his mate a fiery steed, the regaining of his feet was the signal for a runaway. Meanwhile, the driver, already dead, sat bolt upright, the reins in his clenched hands, and there was presented to the horrified onlookers the ghastly sight of the maddened chargers dashing over the narrow abodes of the silent dead, controlled only by the reins in the convulsed hands of a dead driver. I mean, that is terrifying. Uh, and then, at the end, the horses, they collide with a cemetery tree, and then the lifeless driver is hurled from his seat. I mean, it just can you even imagine seeing all of this? Yeah, there, there was one incident also I wrote about in the book where the coffin broke open and the body fell into the grave and then two women in attendance fainted and fell into the grave and everybody was falling oh, all over God. and getting sick and they had to like rebury the woman <sighs> with the broken coffin because they couldn't get another coffin. Oh. Yeah, many, many grave mistakes. Yeah, I think it, during that time, they were doing a lot of discovering of chemicals and learning about ways of doing things and, and trying to learn about science and, you know, how they could make medicines. and But some of these things were just so dangerous that they just didn't even realize that what they had was so deadly. Well, in, arsenic was the favorite um, drug of, of poison of choice. Um, if you wanted to get rid of someone, that was that was extremely helpful. Mm -hmm. You had arsenic in all kinds of things like rough on rats that was meant to kill vermin. Yeah. And again, people were extraordinarily careless with this. They would mix the arsenic with flour, for example, and put it in a saucer and put it in the pantry so the rats would presumably eat it and leave the house. Well, invariably somebody would empty that saucer of flour back into the flour barrel and they'd make a pie and everybody would get sick or die. Yeah. It's really quite astonishing. Let's talk about some of the ghostly stories that you have. I like the stories of the Grim Reaper and the Angel of Death. Those are fun ones. Mm -hmm. We think of, you know, the Grim Reaper with the sigh and everything. He was not so much a medieval, he was more of a medieval yeah. figure than he was a Victorian figure. But you did have angels of death coming to people. Rich and poor alike could be visited, as shown in this well-known but still chilling story of the dart of death as told by Victorian raconteur Augustus Hare. It begins with Lord Summers paying a visit to Lord Warwick, the narrator. When Summers got to Lymington, he found Lord Warwick ill in bed, and he said, I'm so glad to see you, for I wanted to tell you such an odd thing that's happened to me. Last night I was in bed, and the room was quite dark, this old-fashioned room of the inn at Lymington, which you see now. Suddenly at the foot of the bed there appeared a great light, and in the midst of the light the figure of death, just as it's seen in the dance of death in other old pictures, a ghastly skeleton with a sigh and a dart, and death balanced the dart, and it flew past me, just above my shoulder, close to my head. It seemed to go into the wall, and then the light went out and the figure vanished. 
I was as wide awake as I am now, for I pinched myself hard to see, and I lay awake for a long time, but at last I fell asleep. When my servant came to call me in the morning, he had a very scared expression of face, and he said, A dreadful thing has happened in the night, and the whole household of the inn is in the greatest confusion and grief. For the landlady's daughter, who slept in the next room, and the head of the bed who is against the wall against which your head now rests has been found dead in her bed. Oh, that's so scary. Yikes. Oh, that ballad gives you chills, huh? Oh, Augustus Hare always gives you chills. He's, he's got some wonderful ghost stories. Traditionally, in cities, um, people were buried in churchyards, and... Those were an absolute horror show after a while because you were trying to cram a lot of corpses in a very small place, and they didn't really, I don't know, they would they would bury people on top of other graves. You know, you didn't have a permanent grave after a while. And there were reports of human bones crunching underfoot and liquids seeping from burials that were too shallow. You had... You had um, lead coffins that began to swell, and the sexton would have to tap it, would have to poke a hole in it, and then light off the gases so it wouldn't explode. Great stuff. Um, (laughs) It was not a pleasant place to be. You know, now they're so lovely, and it's so great to walk through. We don't picture this kind of, because I love going to churchyards, but I would not love it in these days, it looks like, because that sounds horrific. Not a bit, no. But that was the impetus for what were called garden cemeteries. Um, They moved them outside the cities, and they were meant to be lovely places with flowers and trees and a good place to go picnic. It was was meant to be sort of a destination cemetery. (laughs) And in England, they actually had a, um, a special train, Uh, the necropolis line that went to a cemetery and it was very convenient you didn't have to take a hearse you just pop the corpse into the baggage car and the mourners could ride in comfort that is fascinating we've got this lady named mrs ralph schaefer and she'd been married but a short time and was one of the city bells mr schaefer erected a fine monument to the memory of his dead wife who was interred in her mother's burial plot. The young woman's mother dislikes Schaefer exceedingly and refused to allow him to have his wife's name engraved on the stone. Not wishing to have trouble with her, Schaefer has not insisted on doing so. Recently, a distinct shadow of the late Mrs. Schaefer appeared on the tombstone. It grew until the shadow became life-size. The mother was wroth and had the monument makers rub the stone down with pumice, but they could not efface the shadow. At first sight, the shape has much resemblance to a man's form as a woman's, but by a continued gaze, one seems to see a woman's semi-profile with bangs and the hair done up at the back of the head. The neck and chin show plainly, as do the shoulders, and there's a scarf about the neck. The features are distinct and bear a remarkable resemblance to the dead wife. That is wild. That is great. And that was an article in the Los Angeles Herald. 13th October, 1891. I mean, wow. It's just amazing. 
One thing I like to collect is what I call the ephemera of history, where you've got things that were fads that nobody really remembers. It was just a brief fad, like a woman um, had, they had widow's bicycles. They were enameled black and they didn't have any chrome on them, so the widow could get some healthy exercise. There was supposedly black cigarettes, which you could buy, and I'm not quite sure whether that was just a joke, but um, you could have a smoke without having showing an offensive uh, flash of white. Wow. Some undertakers gave trading stamps with funerals. I always thought that was amusing. That is crazy. Yeah, the morning wheel. Somber affair of solid ebony blackness, unrelieved by any gleaming steel or nickel. And the widow who rides does not make any radical change in her costume. She still clings to her crepe bonnet and veil, unsuited as the latter is for combat with a stiff breeze. <laughs> bizarre. The morning bicycle. And then we have this wonderful woman who made posies. She made wreaths, morning wreaths, out of the dead's clothing. Yeah. I think of the wreaths and, you know, the hair brooches and wow. And it was, it was like you had to have something that had touched the person's body on you you know that to mourn properly mm -hmm. you really needed something really personal like that and there were reports I, I thought this was amusing of widows making memorial wreaths from things that their husband had touched right before he died like okay I'm going to put his medicine bottle in here and I'm going to put his keys mm. and I'm going to put his tie so they're just this sort of multimedia production and I know that was not a common thing, but it was unusual enough that it made the papers. Mm -hmm. It's like you took your junk drawer and made a memorial wreath out of it. <laughs> that, that might be really interesting. <laughs> yeah. I once saw a, this lady made a memorial wreath out of a bunch of the deceased's beautiful silk ties. Um, and yeah. it was really quite attractive and very personal. Yeah, I think that that would be really neat. And there's a lot of, you know, quilts. I know a lot of times they took pieces of clothing and made quilts and, you know, the crazy quilts or, or ties, like you said. There's a very famous cemetery quilt. Um, I believe it was in Kentucky, in, in a collection in, in Kentucky, and it shows a cemetery, and the lady has appliqued coffins with the dead people's names on them inside a little fence. I saw this not very long ago. Yeah, it's an amazing piece. Yeah, so the inside of it, they, it was like it had a little fence going around with all these coffins inside of those that have died. And then along the border, which I thought was really interesting, was coffins with the names on of living people and when you died then those coffins got moved from the outside to the inside of the cemetery and I just thought I mean I could see I could see doing the other you know and, and having the names on the inside but I don't know if I could put the coffin you know with living loved ones names around the outside of the quilt there. Well it's sort of a, 
a modern version of Memento Mori, Remember You Must Die. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah. Um, one of the stories that I really liked in your book, and so maybe I'll read this one, was about a man whose wife had died, and he spent the next nine years in his wife's tomb. Yes. He was, <laughs> he was really something. Um, so devoted. Uh, and a little, I mean, you'd have to wonder what he was thinking exactly. It's Jonathan Reed. Every day the old man gazes upon her face and scours the place. And he, wow. he furnished the tomb with all kinds of things, all her trinkets and hangings and books, and had a canary bird uh, that eventually died, so he had it stuffed and put in the tomb also. And he used to spend the night in it until the graveyard authorities said, no, nah, you're not doing this anymore. <laughs> but she was in a coffin with glass on the, on the lid, so he would lift the crazy quilt from her and look in and say good morning and... Yeah. Um, he eventually had a stroke in the tomb and finally died in 1905. He would look through, it just seems like that would be so scary to the rest of us, looking, looking in and seeing her face. He would say, she is just as pretty as ever. She was always the prettiest woman in the world. Um, and I loved how he said, it's been 44 years since we married, and we're still on our honeymoon. Yes, it is a honeymoon, and I love her as I did at first. You see her pictures here. I have them from the time she was a girl. It just, he just really seemed to love her so much. Yeah, yeah. And I guess so much so that he moved into her tomb, basically, and would spend the days there talking to her, and... He had lots of visitors P people would come and see him and he'd sit outside the tomb and talk to them and it was just such a lengthy term of of spending time with her nine years there was another story about a guy named moon whose wife died somebody said some have said that she committed suicide and he mummified her he built a tomb for her and mummified her, and then he would come visit her. It was quite morbid. I did an episode of The Mummies of Palermo and, and uh. how they did want their loved ones to come and visit, and they really did. <laughs> they would come and they mm -hmm. would pray and you know talk to them and be with them, and it's just not something I think any of us are thinking of in these days, but they did. No, definitely not. Um, although I know that I've known people who are bereaved that, you know, they have the loved one's phone, uh, photo and they talk to the person mm -hmm. as if they're still there, but I doubt that they'd go into a crypt and do that. Chris, if you could, we have about time for one more story. I would love to hear you tell about the fiendish parrot who murdered his mistress. I, I love this story, and I shouldn't. It's it's very wrong of me, but it's such it's a strange, strange story. And this is not an urban legend. This actually happened. Uh, this is a story from uh, the New York Times of 1899. This is sort of the short version. 
The parrot was a gas fiend. At last killed his owner by tearing off Burner while she slept. <laughs> Alice Knott, 36 years old, came to her death yesterday through the instrumentality of her pet parrot, an evil dispositioned bird who was cordially detested by everybody except his mistress, but who seemed to have a strong affection for her. He would follow her from room to room and he was never happy except in her presence. He was generally regarded as a devil and as a bird of ill omen. His unpopularity was increased by an uncanny habit of pulling the tips off the gas burners with his strong beak and inhaling the gas until it stupefied him. He was a gas fiend, a feathered victim of the gas habit. While his young mistress was sleeping yesterday, the parrot took off the lava tip in her room and started on a gas debauch. This time, there was no one near to avert the consequences of his deed. When Miss Knott's relatives, alarmed by her long silence, broke open the door, they found her dead. Her little murderer was found half unconscious by the door. When he found himself succumbing to the gas and was not rescued as usual by his mistress, he realized that something was wrong and had wit or instinct enough to make for the door and shove his bill as far as he could underneath it. He recovered. And while the coroner was in the house, the malignant little bird was caught trying to turn on the gas again. Oh, that is the most wild story. And terrible, so terrible. Like, the bird accidentally murdered his only friend. Probably nobody wanted to, to keep him after that. I wonder what happened to him. Yeah, I haven't heard what happened to him. I know there's longer versions of the story. I'll have to look and see if somebody, like, rang his Probably, neck. Probably, since everyone hated him except the poor lady that he inadvertently killed. Well, was it inadvertent, though? <laughs> right, right. Not some... <laughs> Who knows? Uh... The malignant bird. So fun, Chris. So fun to chat with you and chat about the crazy Victorians and all the spooky stories. I hope that you have a really fun spooky season. Oh yes, always always a good time. It's always spooky season when you're Chris Woodyard. Yes. <laughs> and LaSalle <laughs> because we talk about this stuff all the time but I just thought, oh what a perfect time to talk about these stories from the Victorian Book of the Dead by Chris Richard. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was so fun. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. And enjoy your cemeteries this fall. I will. Of course, I always do. Are you ready to go out and buy your own copy of the Victorian Book of the Dead? You should. It is just full of all the extraordinary tales of Victorian funeral fads, fancies, ghost stories, bizarre deaths, morning novelties, gallows humor, did you know that was a thing? Premature burial, post-mortem photographs, death omens, and funeral disasters. It is a diverting yet a gruesome collection that presents tales ranging from the paranormal and shocking to the very heartbreaking. And if you do want this book, I have a little surprise. Chris has offered to send me 
a signed copy of the Victorian Book of the Dead that I can give away. And so I am going to be giving that away on Instagram sometime this week. So keep your ears and eyes open and have a chance to get this book for your very own. So grateful to Chris today and for all of you for always being here and being such loyal listeners. We love you all. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and even TikTok, where you can interact with us. As always, we love to hear from our listeners. Thank you.